Wow, that was just tremendous. The, uh, the hymns and the songs just, um, just reminding us of uh, the greatness of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our rest. He is our savior. Uh, he is our king. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Join me. Father, we uh, come again before you asking for uh, the blessing of your word upon us, Holy Spirit, that you would accompany the hearing and the preaching of your word, that you would be our help and our comfort as we hear your word, that you would apply it um, to our hearts and to our lives, that you would strengthen our faith and comfort us in our sorrows and and strengthen us in our weakness, O oh God. We ask that you would do this uh, for the sake of your name and for the good of your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So please take your Bibles and turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Uh, this morning, uh, the plan is to go through verses 35 to 46. Uh, we've been going through this just meaty chapter, uh, a very important chapter, um, not only in the Gospel of John, but, uh, but just an important chapter for us understanding who Christ is and, and what it means to receive him and, and the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. And the chapter began... Uh, with a miraculous sign that was performed by Jesus where he fed 5,000 men besides women and children. And he did that with five barley loaves and two small fish. And Jesus performed this miracle because he was revealing his identity to the people. It was a sign to them that he was and is the promised Messiah. But as we've seen, the people, they misinterpreted the miraculous sign uh, they saw it as a sign that Jesus came to meet their earthly desires and to fill their bellies. This is what they saw when they saw Jesus perform the sign. Um, Jesus, to them, would make a great earthly king, uh, a king that could care for them from cradle to grave. And so we saw that when Jesus left the area that evening after doing the miracle, and they couldn't find him. They wanted him so badly to fulfill their earthly needs that they went and even pursued him back to Capernaum. But Jesus, on his part, he was not taken in by their desire to make him an earthly king. And we saw the reason for that is that Jesus had not come to establish a kingdom of men. Jesus had come to bring the kingdom of God. And the way that Jesus would establish that authority of his and reign, he would do so for, by dying for the sins of his people. And so the people, by witnessing this miracle, this sign that Jesus did, Jesus was calling them to believe in him and to receive him as the bread of life. This is what the miracle pointed to. They were to see Jesus, even as they witnessed this miracle of creating and feeding all of these people, they were to see Jesus, the Messiah, right before their eyes. They were to see him not through the eyes of their bellies, so to speak, but they were to see, being called to see him with eyes of faith, and ultimately to receive him as the true manna of God who came to satisfy sinners by offering himself for their sins. This is what the miracle points to. And of course, as we saw, they don't see it. And they misinterpret it, and they reject Jesus as the true manna of God which is to reject the salvation that he is offering them. And so the miracle was done in verses 1 to 15 and misinterpreted by the people. 
in chapter 6, verse 16 to 34. We saw last week, we see a contrast between what saving faith and false faith is as it relates to receiving Jesus as the bread of life. And so this week and next week, here in verse, verses 35 to 71, Jesus is explaining and clarifying the sign he performed and how it points to him as the bread of life. So now he's going to get into the heart of the discourse, and he's going to explain to them how it all really ultimately points to Jesus as the bread of life that is to be believed in if one is to be saved. And so we will see in this passage how Jesus says, first, if you're taking notes, 35 to 40, Jesus is going to remind them that salvation through him, the bread of life, is the divine will of God. Divine will of God. Salvation through Jesus, the bread of life, is the divine will of God. 41 to 46, Jesus will say that faith in him, the bread of life, is the divine work of God. And then the next two weeks, 47 to 51, life through him, the bread of life, is eternal life from God. And finally, in 52 to 771, um, salvation through Jesus is the exclusive way of God, the exclusive way of God. All right. Now, before we read the chapter here, their response to what Jesus is going to say here about the divine will of God and the divine work of God in our salvation is very telling. It, 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 it says a lot about how we understand Jesus, the bread of life. And you're going to see that they grumble at God's, at the Lord's teaching on these matters. And I thought about it in terms of our own heart and our own life as we're even reading this passage. We, we're so familiar with what we're reading that sometimes we can kind of gloss over and not really consider the impact of what is being said to them at that moment when they heard it the first time. And so we really need to evaluate our own faith in Jesus as we look at this, at this passage and what Jesus says here. And the reason that I say this is because in, this, in these verses, Jesus is going to emphasize the, the sovereignty of God in our salvation and he's going to emphasize it very strongly. In fact, this is one of the strongest passages about the sovereignty of God in our, in our salvation. And Jesus is going to tie his very person and his very work as the bread of life. He's going to even tie our own faith in him to God's divine will to God's sovereignty and the work that he is doing. All of it comes under the authority and the reign of, and the sovereign reign of God. Now, when we talk about and hear and read about God's sovereignty, it kind of can buck against our nature, it bucks against our pride and our proudful hearts. And one of the reasons that it is so hard for us to really grasp God's, I think, God's sovereignty over everything is because we don't, how, do I, how can I put it? We don't see it taking place. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we can't. We think about God's sovereignty, and our eyes can't see it, but we're being called to believe it, right? 
We're being called to trust and to believe that God is working all things according to the counsel and the purpose of his will. And many things in life confirm that truth of God's sovereignty. Even the very life and death and resurrection of Jesus confirms the sovereignty of God. But as we live today and we see things happening in the world, we don't actually see God all the time doing the work and controlling all that he is. We can see it in individuals' lives and transformations and certain things can testify as you see God's power displayed in the world, but it's not always right before us. And so we have a hard time sometimes recognizing it. And when we're brought face to face with the truth that even our own salvation is by God's sovereign grace and love alone, it kind of makes us want to fight back with something to offer on our part. Because something happened in us, something transformation caused us to believe, some, something took place, and so I can't necessarily see how it happened, so therefore I must be contributing something to this, to this work something to my own justification, contributing something that in some way we came to Christ because we earned it or we deserved it or we contributed something to what happened to us. But you see, Jesus in this passage here, he leaves no room open for that. And this causes us to pull back. It, it causes us to pull back because we want to say, wait a minute. This can't be all God's sovereign work. I have to do and contribute something to it. But Jesus is going to tell us our coming to faith in Christ our remaining in Christ, our final resurrection in Christ, all of it is according to God's sovereign divine will and his sovereign divine work that is carried out in Christ, the bread of life. So here's how Jesus puts it. Picking up in verse 32, where they're challenging Jesus to say, you must perform some kind of sign like Moses did when he gave us the bread from heaven, quoting from Psalm, I think it's 74. They ate manna. Moses gave us a sign that he was from God, and, and that sign was bread from heaven, and he gave it to us to eat, and it sustained us in the wilderness. It confirmed that Moses was sent from God. And so, Jesus, you must give us a sign. We saw that you once gave us that bread in the wilderness there with the two fish, but you got to do something more to keep giving us a sign. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the, Jews, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who was from God. He has seen the Father. Now, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty strong statement that Jesus is making there about God's and the Father's sovereignty in their salvation. I mean, he is saying the reason you don't believe is because the Father has not given you to me. So, the, the onus on the believing and the coming to Jesus is not based off of primarily our own doing, though we do place faith in Jesus. It ultimately, Jesus is saying, is coming down to the sovereign work of the Father in your life. And this is how Jesus is presenting the divine will and work of God before them. And so what he's going to do here, as he says he is the bread of life, the, he's going to give us three never, four, really four nevers, which are also you know, negatives, but the opposite is a positive, right? Four negatives, but there's also a positive element to it as he's talking about God's divine will in Jesus, the, what he's carrying out as the bread of life. And the first of these four nevers or negatives in this passage that Jesus promises for those who come to him is found there in verse 35. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So they say, give us this bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And let me tell you something about those who come to me. They shall never, they shall not hunger, and they shall never thirst. And they shall never thirst. He's saying, unlike what happened with the manna that came from Moses in the wilderness, they ate of it in the wilderness, and they had to keep eating of it. Why did they have to keep being given manna? They had to keep being given manna from heaven to sustain them through the wilderness, because after they ate the manna, what happened? They became hungry. They became hungry again and again. And so God gave them manna from heaven, and Moses is leading them through the wilderness. And Jesus says, if you, those who come to me, the bread of life, will never hunger again. And he says they will never thirst again. So even though this context doesn't talk about Moses striking the rock and the water coming out, I think there's a sense in which there may be a relationship here because of he's, they've been talking about Moses. Jesus says, and they will never thirst again. Unlike what happened when Moses struck the rock and the water gushed out and they drank the water and their thirst was quenched for a season, they became thirsty again. Jesus says, 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and they shall, he says, never thirst. And the reason that they will never hunger and they will never thirst is because of the very first part of the verse in verse 35 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In other words, I satisfy all of the needs, the spiritual needs of the people. And they're thinking physical, but Jesus is talking about their spiritual need and their spiritual hunger and thirst. Jesus, as the bread of life, satisfies all of it. You see, they said, sir, give us this bread always. They, they want it always because they're thinking in physical terms and they're thinking, we need this bread then. Whatever you're talking about, Jesus, we need it always. Give it to us over and over and over again. And they have this earthly perspective on Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to give you this bread over and over and over again. I need to give you this bread. Whoever comes to receive me, the bread of life, only needs me once and you will forever be satisfied. And so this I am statement, I am the bread of life, Jesus also uses that I am and then uh, a predicate following it. He is something. He uses it several times in the Gospel of John. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And what Jesus means by saying, I am the light of the world, he is saying there is no greater or no more greater revelation that can be given to the world than himself. That's what Jesus is saying. I am, he says, the light of the world. There, there is no other revelation given to the world greater than me. Jesus also says in chapter 10, verse 7 and 9, he says, I am the door. What's Jesus saying when he says, I am the door? Jesus is saying, there is no other entry into heaven but through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door. If you want to go into heaven, if you want to be with the Father in glory, then you must go through Jesus. There is no other, there is no other door. Jesus also says, Chapter 10, verse 11 and 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. What is he saying? He's saying all other people that claim to be shepherds are hired hands and they don't actually care for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I alone know my sheep. They belong to me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. There is no other shepherd of God's people other than Jesus Christ. I'm the good shepherd, he says. He also says, I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11, verse 25. What is he saying there when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? Jesus is saying, there is no other resurrection unto life from the dead but through me. If anyone is ever going to be risen from the dead, it must be through Jesus. Because with Jesus, there is resurrection unto life. Without Jesus, there is no resurrection unto life. Jesus says, I'm the only one. Then he also says, and we read this this morning, Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. What's Jesus saying? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying there is no other, there is no other way to come before God the Father and to know him but through Jesus. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God manifested before you and speaking to you, and I am the life of God, Jesus is saying, and there is no other. Then Jesus also says, chapter 15, verse 1 and 5, 
I am the true vine. What is he saying? Jesus is saying there is no one else that can sustain life and give fruit to a life unto God but through Jesus. You need to abide in Jesus, the true vine, and only in abiding in him can one be truly sustained and fruitful in their life. So all of those I am statements, there is no other, and here Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In other words, if you come to Jesus and you believe on him, there is no more hunger or thirst. There is no more hunger or thirst because you have been fully satisfied in Jesus. You have come back to the one for whom you were made. And Jesus promises here that this satisfaction for the present day is a rest for every believer. You're going to have trials, troubles, tribulations, temptations, brokenness, difficulty in this life, but Jesus says if you come to him, he will actually satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. He will satisfy you completely because he is the bread of life. And then he says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, I demonstrated this power and this authority and I, I demonstrated it, my sovereignty to you in giving you bread and in giving you fish and in feeding you miraculously. And I, and I said to you that I am this, this God that is providing for you and, and yet you do not believe. So here I am presenting myself before you, talking to you, living among you, healing you, feeding you, but you do not believe. And then the question becomes this, why? Why don't they believe? After all that they've seen, after witnessing what Jesus does, why don't they believe? And then, let me turn the question around because part of us would look at that situation and if you're like me, your initial reaction is, they're crazy. They're stupid. How could they not believe? I mean, look at what's being done. I mean, surely they must have seen it. Something must be wrong with them. Why don't they believe? But just turn the, the question around the other way and ask the question like this. Not, why don't they believe? That's a good question. But how about ask it like this? Why do you believe? Why does anyone believe what Jesus reveals about himself. Why is it you and me came to faith in Jesus Christ after not, not seeing the miracle done, but just reading about it and hearing the story? Why did we come to faith in Jesus Christ and yet our neighbors and our loved ones and our family members don't? you ever thought of it that way? Is it something in you or is it something in me? Is it something that we have within us that is good and noble that we could respond to Jesus but our neighbor couldn't respond? And so this is what Jesus is addressing to them. He's saying to them, look, I've done this before you and you've seen it done, 
and yet you don't believe. And then he goes on and he gives the reason in verse 37. See, Jesus isn't troubled by the fact they're not believing. Jesus isn't thinking that he did something wrong or maybe he didn't say the right words or maybe he didn't present the sign clearly enough to them. Maybe they need more information. No, Jesus doesn't say any of that. In fact, his reason for them not believing is in verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So what is the first action of coming to Jesus? In our world, we like to say, you know what? Someone first to be given to Jesus must first come, first come to Jesus, and then the Father will give you to Jesus. That's how, that's how we like to think about it. Come to Jesus, and then the Father will give you to Jesus as your Savior. But Jesus doesn't say it that way. He actually says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the initiation, the will of God, the desire of God, was to save a certain people from, without, from within the fallen world of sinners and then to choose them and to give them to Jesus as a gift. This is why those who were hearing and seeing and not believing didn't come. They didn't come and believe because the Father had not given them to Jesus. But those who did believe, that's exactly why they come. And so some other passages you might look at from the New Testament that, that picture this is such as Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, where Paul says, just read these for you. He opens up his letter and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So even from before the foundation of the world, God the Father had given as a love gift to his son a people. You can also, we won't go through them for the sake of time, but if you want to take notes, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and 26, 18, they all speak about God's giving and choosing a people. And so those who are given to the Son by the Father will come, Jesus says. The gift cannot refuse to be given. I, I guess in a kind of a crass way, you think about a Christmas gift, you know? You wrap it up, you present it, it's yours, you bought it, it's your, it's your, you chose it, and then you want to imagine giving it, giving that gift, whatever it is, trying to give that gift to your son, and the gift says, no, I don't want to be given and jumps and hops away or whatever out of the Christmas tree. Like, no, there is no sense in which the, the gift the gift cannot refuse to be given. The gift is given, and the gift then, um, in terms of people, comes to Jesus. And so then, that's the first, really, never. You will never hunger. You will never thirst, uh, because you are satisfied in Jesus, and you have come to him 
um, because he has been, you have been given to Jesus by the Father. Sovereign will over all of it. And then you also see in verse 37, not only will you never hunger and never thirst when you come to Jesus, Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, he says, I will never cast out. Jesus says, All, you don't believe because you haven't been given to me by the Father, but if you do come to me, you will never hunger and thirst. And if you come to me in faith, you will never be cast out. Isn't that good news? If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he will satisfy you and your soul forever, and you never have to fear being cast out of the Garden of Eden again. You never have to fear being cast out of the promised land. You never have to fear that someday God, Jesus, will cast you out of his temple and out of his presence. Jesus says, those who come to me, who believe in me with a humble and contrite heart, they will never be cast out of my presence. Is that good news to you? It needs to be. Look, there are some people, sadly, who one day will be cast out of his presence. Jesus says, for the unbelieving, for the believer, Jesus says, you will never be cast out. But for the unbelieving, Jesus promises that he will cast out of his presence all those who refuse to come to him and reject him. He says in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus will declare and cast out from his presence those who are workers of lawlessness, who are workers of evil, those who are not doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. And as we saw last week in John 6, when they said to Jesus, well, what is it? that we should be doing to be doing the works of God? What did Jesus say are the works of God? That you believe in me. If you believe in Jesus and you have received him and come to him as the bread of life who satisfies your soul, God says you will never be cast out. But if you reject him, he says, you will be told, depart from my presence. And in fact, Revelation 21 to 8 says, as opposed to the new heaven, the, new, the kingdom of God that is coming in the future in Christ, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, for it is forever. What is the difference between one who comes to Jesus in faith and one who is eventually cast out? The difference is the people in Matthew 7, when they are coming and taking the name of Jesus on themselves, they're basically marked by and think that they will be received on the basis of who they are and what they have done for Jesus. You notice that? They say, hey, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And did we not do that in your name? Didn't we do all these things? Didn't we say that, Jesus, we love you? Didn't we adopt your name and do all of these extraordinary works? They, they think they're going to be accepted because of who they are and what they have done for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't receive them because the way that one truly believes in Jesus and is accepted by Jesus, the one who comes to Jesus truly comes to Jesus not on the basis of what they have done for Jesus, but on the basis of faith in what Jesus has done for them. This makes all the difference in the world. Jesus has done the work of redemption. Jesus has done the work of salvation. Jesus is the one who has shed his blood, is given his body, who is crucified and buried and risen again for the salvation of sinners, and he has done it all. And what we are called to do is to believe on him and to come to him and to receive that. And he says, I will never cast you out. A humble, contrite spirit. And so this is the second never, and the third one is in verse 39. You will never hunger. You will never be cast out. And verse 39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me. We'll get back to verse 38. Verse 39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. I should lose nothing. It's in the perfect tense. It's an accomplished fact that those he has given me is accomplished those given to Jesus by the Father, it's a done deal. And Jesus says, because of that sovereign will and gift of God, he says, I will lose none of them on the last day. So that means that not only are you presently cared for by Jesus, and not only is your certainty in this life, even in the future days ahead of you, a certainty that he will never cast you out. But he's saying your assurance even goes as far as to the very last day of that final day of resurrection. Jesus says when that future day of final resurrection comes, he says no one who is given to me by the Father will ever be lost. You will never be lost and without a shepherd. You will never be without a mediator. You will never be without a savior. You can have the assurance of your salvation that you will be raised up in the last day because the Father has given you to the Son as a love gift as, and the Son keeps that gift himself forever. You see, I want to ask you, what is the assurance of your salvation based on? What is the assurance 
that you will be raised up on the last day if you have that assurance. And I ask you, will you be raised up on the last day? And you say, yes, I will. Then I ask, what is that assurance based off of? Is it based on your own strength? Is it based on the fact that you believe you will remain faithful to the end? Or is it based on the fact that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the end? I hope it's the latter. Because I remember going to church camps, and I remember going to one church camp, and I was sitting in a class, and he was talking about salvation, and I'll just, I'll never forget it. I, must, I was a teenager, and he's saying that you come to Jesus, and he can forgive you of your sin, and you need to receive him into your heart, and, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and, and it's true, we do place our faith in Jesus, but now I know it's because of God's work, but then I wasn't quite sure, and, and so I'm thinking and listening, and, and then he says, and then when you come to Jesus, and he turns around, and there was a whiteboard behind him. This gives you my age. <laughs> we still use we used whiteboards. So he draws a, a big line across the whiteboard and like sticks, and he draws a little stick figure on top of this line. You, you can get the picture, right? Two sticks and a straight line and a guy on top of the line. And he says, so here... God, because of his grace, he, he puts you on the tightrope. He puts you on top of the tightrope, and there's heaven. And what you need to do is you need to walk across that tightrope to get to heaven without falling off. And I thought, there's no way. There's no hope. I will soon fall off that tightrope and I will be lost forever. But Jesus says, there is no tightrope. Jesus says, when you come to me, the certainty of your ending is guaranteed. You will not fall off the tightrope. There is no tightrope. When you come to me, I will never cast you out and I will never lose you because you belong to me, Jesus said. Jesus says, you belong to me because the Father gave you to me as a gift. And that was, when I finally heard the gospel in that way for the longest time, I realized there is nothing that I can do within myself to come to Jesus, and there is nothing that I can do within myself to remain in Jesus, and there is nothing that I can do within myself to be raised in Jesus. I just don't have the ability to do it, and neither does anyone. And the believer that comes to Jesus sees that I've come to Jesus and my assurance is based off of the fact that Jesus did it all. And you receive it. And this is why Jesus prays for us. You can look if you want. I'm not going to go through in detail, but John chapter 17 where Jesus talks about this gift of love in these belief that, that the Father has given to him, and, he, and he, he's praying for them, and he's giving this high priestly prayer, and the way that he begins that prayer in verses 1 to 2, he begins the prayer like this. He lifts up his eyes to heaven. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. And he's talking about his crucifixion. He knows it's coming. 
This is what he came for. He lifts up his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given me. You see, Jesus is going to the cross so that he can win eternal life for all those that the Father has given him. Jesus received from the Father to grant eternal life to a certain people, and those certain people are the ones the Father has given to him. So he goes on in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They were given, and Jesus says, I know that they were given from you because they have believed that you sent me. So the giving comes first, then the believing he says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except who? The son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There was one among them who was not given to Jesus by the Father for salvation, but for destruction. And that is Judas who did not believe. And so Jesus says, these gifts given to me will be completely done according to God's sovereign will. He is the bread of life. You will never hunger, you will never be cast out, and you will never be lost, those who come to him. And these people weren't coming to him. And Jesus gives the reason back in verse 38, and we'll, we'll close with this, and we won't get to 41 to 46, but Jesus, Jesus says, in all these gracious promises, he gives the reason for his confidence that all these things will be true of those who come to him and why it's not true of them. And his confidence is based off of the sovereign will of God. Jesus coming from heaven to save sinners are coming to Jesus and being satisfied in him, are coming to Jesus and never being cast out, are coming to Jesus and never being lost, are coming to Jesus and being raised again in the future in him. All of them are grounded in God's sovereign will and love. As Jesus says in verse 38, here's the reason why you will never be cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of my Father, verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Are you looking to Christ? 
Are you looking to Christ and to Christ alone? If you are, beloved, draw great comfort from his sovereign will and his work in your life. God brought you to Jesus. He will keep you. You should, we should be a people always and forever praising God for his work of redemption. And keep this in mind too, that when you evangelize, and you share the gospel, don't be discouraged when they don't respond. Just keep sharing the gospel because it's God's work. Be faithful, be bold. Don't be hard on yourself if you don't speak the gospel correctly the first time or you mess up. Just trust him and believe in him. He cares for you. And if you haven't come to faith in Christ, just know that God and the Lord Jesus Christ, there's still time. He's calling you. He's saying, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you come to him, you're still coming to him. You're still putting faith in him. Of course, God is doing that work, but if you come to him, you can know that you came because of God's love for you, not because of your own strength. And so come, receive Jesus. He is the bread of life, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for for being who you are and for the work that you have done for being our God and for being our Savior for being a merciful and a faithful high priest for laying down your life for sinners for your sacrifice for shedding your blood for taking our sin upon yourself and for paying the price for it that we deserved thank you Lord Jesus for a redemption that we never could have earned on our own. Thank you for giving us eyes to see. We could have been just as these individuals looking at a miraculous sovereign will being done right before our very eyes, the feeding of 5,000, and we could have seen it, and we would have been no better off because we would have still been lost in our sin. And we would have rejected you and we would have been thinking with our bellies and not with our eyes. But yet you have showed us kindness and mercy by, by redeeming us and saving us. You have loved us, O oh Father, from before the foundation of the world. You loved us in a special way and you chose us when we were not deserving on our own when we had nothing to bring and when we had not done anything good or right, you decided to redeem us. And that is so humbling, Father, especially as we look at our lives. It is so humbling because we see that our lives are filled with sin, even still. They're filled with fits of anger at times and anxiety and selfishness. We often drag around our flesh and we feed it all too often, Father. And we don't live as those who have been redeemed, but we live too often as the old self. And we know, Father, that had you left us in the condition of our sin, we never would have come to you. But you still loved us and you chose us and you redeemed us. And you gave to us the precious gift of faith to believe when we couldn't have done it on our own. We pray that you would help us to remember that and to be a humble people.
that we would not be a proud people lifted up, that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think of ourselves, but that we would have the mind that you had, that you did not even count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, remove from us such false pride. Remove from us, O God, a self-reliance and a dependence on our own abilities and strength. And remind us that you have done a great work in our hearts and in our lives because of your love for your son and your love for us. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you that you have promised that we should never hunger and thirst that we would be satisfied in you, Lord Jesus, and indeed we are. You have promised never to cast us out. and You have promised never to lose us. And we believe you. And we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>